Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Jim Heller, who is a solicitor, uh, that is like a lawyer. Well, he's a criminal defense lawyer up in Canada. We have a conversation about his rowdy time being a cult member in a 70s derivative of an Indian guru that comes over to America and begins to uh, prophesy some very deep knowledges. And he got swept up in that for, uh, it seems like, almost a decade. And then he went on with his life. So we talk about that adventure. And then we talk about his other scholastic pursuits as well as him just dealing with cult-like thinking since then which is kind of relevant to what he sees happening now in popular discourse or in the culture at large i didn't expect anything from any interview i never expect anything from any interview but i was pleasantly surprised uh by his verve and uh vivacity it was a fun conversation so here we go. Let's have fun. This is Benjamin Boyce, and here is Jim Heller. I'm from back east. I'm from Toronto, mainly. And when I was 18 or so, um, I uh, left school. Um, I was at York University, and I, uh, I left school. I wasn't interested in that any longer, and I came out west, and I joined this Maharaji cult. Oh. Yeah. And I said, do you know who that is? Could you give... Uh an outline of that? I'm, I'm picturing a guy with a lot of facial hair. Um, no, actually not. He was young. He was too young for that. He had a fledgling mustache. Uh, he was like 15 years old when I first got involved. He was a 15-year-old lord of the universe. And, and it's, it's incredible how time just swallows up everything. He was a big phenomenon at that point. He was in Time magazine. Um, several celebrities kind of fell at his feet. Most notoriously, Rennie Davis. So Rennie Davis was one of the Chicago Seven, and he was on his way. Remember, you, you know Chicago Seven. You know Rennie Davis. No, I don't. I need to watch that Netflix film, but I'm. It sucks. It's 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 Aaron Sorkin. Oh. You know, if you can tolerate Aaron Sorkin, he's exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But um. But but Rennie Davis is one of the guys, and he was on his way to, I think, the uh, the Hanoi American peace talks that went on forever in Paris. And when he was on the plane, he sat next to a follower of Maharaji, and the follower of Maharaji just completely seduced him with uh, the allure of what Maharaji promised. And he became a premi, which means lover in Hindi, which was what we called ourselves, everybody was in this cult. So suddenly this big leader, he was the leader of the SDS, Students for Democratic Society, bolted and became a follower of this teenage, fat little lord of the universe, uh, who we thought was God. We totally believed that he was God in human form and that he had proven that to us. This is how subtle and tricky it got. The whole thing that his, his pitch was that you don't have to believe anything. Everything's just based on evidence. I can show you these meditation techniques that will just prove themselves to you. And you will, 
you'll see that they're totally aligned with all of the scriptures of the world and all complete falls into place. And here I am. I'm the living perfect master. I'm here to bring peace to the world. So Davis becomes a follower of his. And of course, he goes back to Berkeley and tries at one point to bravely face, um, you know, the, the Berkeley fomenting, it's like 1973, perhaps, 72 or 3. And he got pelted, you know, with tomatoes and stuff, all of that. So I was a follower of this kid, and he did not have much facial hair. He had like a very thin little mustache. Did he have handlers, or was he just naturally charismatic? His father was naturally charismatic. So his father was the sat guru, the true guru before him in India. Dad had four sons. Maharaji was the youngest. When dad died, and this could all be bullshit. Supposedly he fell on a bar of soap in the shower and died. It might not be true. Who knows, right? But anyways, he left a letter saying that, you know, I my love to everybody, but I salute my youngest son as being kind of the the recipient of the light that, that passes and never extinguishes. Hmm. So Maharaji was, I think, uh, 13, 12 or 13 at that point. Maybe, no, no, he was even younger. God, I'm, I'm, I, it's fading. I'm starting to screw up my Maharaji. Um, so w- uh, when did he export his... Uh godly powers to the west what year so some hippies some english hippies mainly english a few american found him in india like around 70 okay and 71 72 he makes his first trip to london and i'd say 72 and big phenomenon nobody knew like could this be true it's the early 70s everybody was suspending their their disbelief this is when carlos castaneda um, got a PhD at Berkeley with absolutely no field notes, total bullshit about Don Juan and all of that. The younger bucks on the faculty were able to persuade the older guys, hey, you know, you guys are following an older model. You, you should be more receptive and more open. So that's what happens. So we're, we're like that with Maharaji. Like, could this be true? Actually, they were more evidence-based than we were. But we thought we were. We thought we were. We thought we were. How, how were the cells organized or the churches or the the plantations yeah. or whatever you call the ashram, the ashram. They were the center all okay. all across, and and we were we got really big. It was like a very kind of burgeoning organization. We had telex machines, if you can believe that. That's how. Is that like a telex. fax machine with pneumatic yeah. tubes or something? <laughs> oh my god! It's um, it was like a form of like a immediate communication. Before the internet, it was like the, the immediate precursor to the. So internet. it was like text messaging then. Yes. Okay. Yeah, on paper. So we had that. Like it was very impressive in the moment. Okay. What was I talking about? So how well, the, oh, the anyways, ashrams, the, how they were. Well, the whole thing. So so, okay, we were very proud of the fact that we were spreading all over the place, and every major city had like a had a center. And uh, then there'd be people that didn't live in the center. They were kind of maybe sometimes um, a little bit less committed. They they didn't, for whatever reason, want to be celibate monks. Go figure. Okay. Yeah. So that I was that was one that. of the selling points, yeah. or yeah. I guess uh, features would, of this. What would you need sex for if you're if you're able to merge with divine, you know, kind of energy and stuff? Sex is just kind of a, a low energy. Yeah. 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 And this is co-ed. Then. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the ashrams were co-ed. That's right. We were able to do that uh, until things started to kind of dim, and then the the baser kind of human tendencies started to <laughs> rise. Yeah. Right. 
So after some years, that's what happened to me. And I, le- I had this girlfriend and I left the ashram. We moved down to California. I had some family there at the time. My father was there. My sister was there. And uh, after a while, I went back to school and um, went to Cal State Northridge. And it was great. I started like just using my mind again. So, okay. So the thing with the cult was that we believed that our mind, our thoughts were like just evil transgressors. It was like a virus. That's how kind of hardcore this was. We were so much more hardcore than all these other cults, even though we weren't violent necessarily. Hmm. We really thought that the mind was evil and we were trying to transcend it. Totally 100% transcend it. Now, when I escaped after some years, I'm enjoying my mind. I started smoking dope again. I started thinking, reading, all of that. And at Cal State Northridge, just loving it, loving being in school. And I went on to law school and I went to USC and um, graduated '87. 87. Uh, Why did you choose law? What was... What? Uh, it, it, was it was kind of like um, uh, not a default. I took the LSAT. I did well on it. Didn't know what I was going to do next. Uh, thought of maybe going kind of the academic route. I had some professors that wanted me to history, economics, but um, but I didn't. So uh, yeah, I got a scholarship to SC, <clears throat> and uh, it was flattering. And I didn't know what I was going to do next. Oh yeah, and as someone who'd been like this hippie in a cult where I had done it, but menial jobs during that time, the idea of being able to kind of. Um, maybe kind of move into a profession and wash all of that away was very kind of enticing. Hmm. So what happened? Was there a process of deprogramming or uh, that you had to confront uh, consciously or did things just kind of naturally kind of break apart and disintegrate your belief system? Right. So I started to become disillusioned as time went on and Maharishi's promise obviously couldn't be fulfilled because he was not the Lord of the Universe. And what was his prom- What was he going to give you guys at the end of time being like 1981 on September 3rd or something like that? Right. So it wasn't quite that specific, but... Um, but it was a little bit like that. When we went to the Houston Astrodome in 1973, we didn't take winter coats. Okay, we went in the winter and we thought something just amazing was going to happen, but it didn't. Did he tell you? Yeah, he did and his brothers did. And and years later, they tried to completely, you know, rationalize that all the way and say they weren't really saying that, but it's bullshit. They were. And we believed it. And so then we had to kind of justify how it didn't happen. So we had that that ongoing Jehovah's Witness syndrome that they must still, you know, be suffering from with many, many, many kind of false um, end games. Hmm. So that was part of it. So I, but I still didn't leave that. 73, that's still early on. I'm still in the cult for years to come. But the experiences didn't really take me anywhere further because they weren't like this kind of pathway to merging with divine consciousness. That didn't really happen. And... Maraji's kind of sway in the world wasn't kind of growing as we hoped and expected that it would and all of that kind of these things. Oh, and I was starting to miss the world. As time goes by, I'm not, I've got peers my, that are kind of advancing in life. They're, they're forming families. They're at least having sex. You know, they're enjoying the world. They're developing kind of careers. I'm doing these bullshit menial jobs because that's not where we were at. 
we didn't want to be attached to the world, to our egos, all that. So you guys so, would just grow grains and weave shirts and sell uh, no, we'd have shit. umbrellas no, we'd work, or something? No, we'd work in warehouses. We'd okay. get like shitty jobs in, in, in the city. Oh, okay. So you'd still be connected to the world, but you uh, yes. everybody was capped at a certain very low-end blue-collar job. No yes. management. You can't... You can't yeah. Up the... Why would you want to do that? Like, what, what, what kind of an ego kind of trip is that? Why would you want to do that? Okay. Yeah. The 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 plum jobs were getting a, a position in the organization itself. Yeah. Then you could just go. You know, sky sky was the limit. Yeah, because you're but, working in right. the blessings of the tide. Yeah. Exactly. Huh. Yeah. Do you, do you kind of wish that this had come your way? Would oh, you like me. That? Yeah. Uh, no, no, I, I found sure? my own cult. I'm, I'm totally fine with the one no, that but I everybody found. Everybody says that. Are you sure that you don't want to see that? <laughs> Man, I'm so, it's been years since I've tried to like kind of make that pitch, but I miss it. Oh, uh, so you would time. proselytize. You, yes. you would talk to people. And uh, what was the content of the, the practice then? There was some meditation. So, like mantra based meditation or no, focusing on a. Four okay. techniques. Uh, I'll show them to you. We, we swore like it was like the the most serious um, uh, sober um, uh, oath ever that we would never ever reveal these techniques. But of course, I've crossed that river a long time. Are ago. they going to so come after us? Are they yeah. going to come after me? They, they might. So one of them is to see divine light. We just simply pressed our eyes and kind of put our finger up here in the forehead. And if you do that, you will see. <laughs> So it's so funny I'm doing this. In other words, to listen to the sound of the breath, and we there was a a weird one. There were four. There was a weird one where we'd actually put our train our tongue to go up behind the palate of the roof of the mouth, and supposedly that was our connection to get divine nectar. These are classic Indian okay. yoga things. Yeah. But, yeah. but the whole idea was that even if you got them without Maharaji's grace, they'd be nothing. They wouldn't be effective. It was all Maharaji. It was all about him. Oh, okay. Uh, was what was his trajectory then? Did he maintain purity even though he wasn't able to uh, give God to everyone? Was he exempt from human scandal? Until he was on a flight, just like Rennie Davis, but this is a different one, where he's on a flight and one of the stewardesses, which is a word that you might not know because you're so young, that, that was like a female flight attendant. <laughs> Anyways, so one of the stewardesses happened to be a premie. She was a follower of his in California. Totally hot. She, he's like still 15, I think, at the time. She's like maybe 21, 22. Just gorgeous, just gorgeous, gorgeous woman. And and he just totally fell in love with her. And, of course, she was his for, for the asking. I mean, you know, he's the cult leader. He's God. So he hooked up with her. And this caused this rift in the family. So I told you that there were three other brothers and his mother. And they all supposedly worshipped him. And they all played the game as if he was the perfect master. But when he hooked up with Marilyn, you know, that, that was a big deal. And so the, fa the family was um, split asunder. They had a big court case in India. They fought over the assets of Divine Light Mission. Judge gave them all shit, said, you know, this is like a very bad reflection on Indian spirituality. And they went their separate ways. Maharaji kept one brother with him and the other two brothers and mom uh, went off and did their other thing. So one of the other brothers became a big political leader in India. 
Another one became, the guy was a total idiot. He became a guru in his own right in India. Uh, then there's Raji back here in the West, and he's got the best looking of the four brothers. I have to say, Raji, he was a very cool guy. Hmm. And and he married also a very hot girl. She was like the heiress to some big German um, arms thing or something like that. So so <laughs> one day, now I'm in law school, and I've, I've drifted apart. You asked me how I got away. Well, hmm. I'm enjoying I'm enjoying relishing in my doubts now and thinking about things and seeing how he's changed things and not really kind of been uh, clear and accountable for them. For example, you used to only be able to get initiated by Maharaji's Muhammad's. His, I can't believe that all we're doing is talking about this, but that's good. It's that's interesting. Fine, fine. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm loving so, it. So Maharaji would anoint various followers to become a Mahatma, which means great soul, which means like they're one of his vessels. And only they um, were authorized dealers for the meditation. So they were the ones that could show you the techniques. And um, so that obviously they were immediately um, placed on incredibly high pedestals. I remember when he first made his first four Western followers Mahatmas, three guys and a, and a girl. And it was like, wow, they went from being regular human beings to saints. Okay, that's how we looked at them. Now, years later, it's like he's allowed them to drift out because the whole organization's tried to tone down, tone down, tone down. And he's trying to say that they were never really that divine because at that time he said if they fell, they're going to really high height. But if they fell from there, it's like a glass and you lift it up really high, it's going to shatter when it, when it drops. It's not low to the ground. But then suddenly that all fell apart. And I'm now a lawyer in law school, and I'm a lawyer. And then, hey, wait a second. How do you reconcile that? Yeah. So one day, one day, a friend of mine who is still into Mirage uh, comes and visits me in L.A. from Canada. And he says, Jim, Rajaji, who was that one good-looking brother that stayed with Mirage, Rajaji's having a meeting out near the airport. So, you know, big cult meeting, hundreds of people. Why don't you come? Just for the hell of it. And I, I said, okay, I will, just for the hell of it. So I went, and I sat in the back of the hall, and I'm listening to this guy. And, of course, it's a, it's just a fundraiser, right? All they're trying to do is get money for, I think, Marge, was buying a new um, 747 or something, and they needed to, to get money for it. So, um, so there's this guy that... I'm in the very back, and there's this guy that's saying to Rajaji um, way up front, you know, look, I, I totally want to give you money, and I'm totally supportive, and he's very kind of humble and, and in fact, um, self-effacing, and what you'd expect a good cult member to be like. Hmm. But he says, but I'm confused. I'm confused about some of these changes, the same ones that I was just talking about, just glaring kind of inconsistencies in, in the dogma over time. So Rajaji starts giving this bullshit pitch, and he's, you know, kind of just nothing, kind of just trying to basically um, blow the guy off so he can continue to get his money and just move on. And for the first time, I'm in the very back uh, um, row, I stood up and I started heckling him. Like, I was one of the guys that used to kick the hecklers out, right? Oh. And now I'm a heckler, right? And I said, hold on, that's not fair. You know, we were told your brother was divine, you know, and this guy's got some honest, sincere questions. So Rajaji starts talking to me now, and he's saying, well, it's kind of like the movie The Last Emperor. We were raised to, and it's like weird stuff he's saying, because it kind of makes it sound like it wasn't genuine. 
There was so just they bullshit. were indoctrinated themselves. Yes. Oh, that's right. What? That's right. Weird. And it's a funny thing for him to kind of concede that way. Anyways, I instead of getting kicked out, I just somehow kind of we we start like talking and people's heads are swimming back and forth and, and I invite him to to kind of go out for a drink later to talk about things. And that makes everybody laugh, which was funny because nobody ever laughed at these hecklers before. We were the kind of people that, as I say, got summarily kicked out and and whatever. So anyways, uh, that doesn't happen. The meeting's over. I go up to the front and I kind of introduce myself. And I mention that I'm a lawyer now. And suddenly at that juncture that's really impressive so i'm like this guy skeptical still cult member no not really but you know whatever and he wants so he comes to see me in my office the next day he's living out in malibu and he's got a haircut in beverly hills and he's gonna drop by and meet me after (laughs) he's gonna drop by and meet me after work and we're gonna go down to the red robin for for a drink so we do we go for a drink and when we're there all he's doing is just complaining about how wrong she's not giving him enough money and I'm saying to him, well, I, that doesn't interest me. What interests me is like reality. Like, what, what the hell, right? And after a while, he says to me, you know, here's what he said to me. He said, I said, who do you think Marashi is? And who does Marashi say he is? And you know what? He dropped his guard. This is really incredible. Huh. People might not believe this. If, if any current, because there are some kind of lifers that are still, you know, into the cult, and that's a whole other thing. But if they saw this, they, they still might doubt this happened, or maybe not. But Roger G., this guy, he looked at me and he dropped his guard and he said, I've tried to ask him that too. Like, who does he think he is? And he won't answer. And at that point, I felt totally liberated. I said, huh. that is so cool. That it was my final moment to be able to close the door. Hmm. And that was it. I walked him out to his very expensive old man Mercedes, and he took yeah. off. Wow. Did you feel regret for lost time, or did you kind of just fold that into your experience and your journey as a human? Yeah. I mean, that's eight years of my life, you know, that obviously, uh, you know, there were some fun times here. Like I became like I was I played guitar and I wrote a lot of cult songs. But I mean, let's face it, that's all, you know, that, that was not how a trajectory that I would have chosen for myself mm. or anybody else knowing now how you know, kind of false it is. OK, so anyways, I come back to Canada. And uh, yeah, I've been out of the country for about eight or nine years and um now I'm a lawyer and different things happen. I end up coming back to Canada. I, 1990, I come back here. And um, I do whatever it takes to get retooled so that I can practice law here in Canada, too. So I, I became a lawyer here. And I'm a criminal lawyer and I live in Victoria. And 1996, 97 is when people started getting online. And so I did, too, right? And modems and all of that, um, mm-hmm. dial-up modems. And I couldn't believe it. this is it was magical. Do you remember when you first got online? It's just just incredible. Yeah. I think it was, it was probably right around like 1998 or something like that. Okay, so this is maybe like, 96 yeah, actually. 96. Yeah, it's, it's right around then. I, I spent like two hours online and I, I walked out of the out of the computer lab and my the whole world seemed completely different. It was very mind melting. You could get free porn. Like online, like it's fucking. <laughs> oh, I couldn't believe good. it. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on here? I just, I just couldn't believe it. But then I was like, well, what do I want to? What do what do I do with this? You know, what's? And I thought, well, what about what's interesting? 
And I thought, what about that cult? Because it had been some years now. Like I was already, I'd left Mirage, you know, far behind. Mm -hmm. But I looked for people, and this is when Usenet was happening, like the different kind of discussion boards. Mm -hmm. And I found some people on Alt Support X Cult. And um, it was just a general discussion, but I was asking about Maharaji. And um, uh, one thing led to another, and some people, some of us ex-followers kind of met, and we came together, and we started the Internet ex-followers scene. And to this day, you can go to ex-premi.org. Okay. And that's kind of like the, the information clearinghouse. Okay. And we had discussion boards. And so now we're kind of fighting the cult. Mirage's trying to reinvent himself at that point. He's trying to become an ambassador for peace and, and totally um, uh, disassociating himself from his earlier claims. And, and the cult is doing all that it can to, to try to gaslight the world, anybody that's watching, anybody interested. And um, <clears throat> so we're fighting that. And we're kind of putting up the truth. Anybody that's going to Google Mirage is going to find this. We're involved in big Wikipedia wars and this is the kind of nascent days of Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and then what happened? Oh, yeah. So the cults, I'm getting law society complaints. Uh, they're doing horrible things. Oh, they're like, coming they're, after you then. Oh, coming Retaliatory. After, okay. Right, right. Yeah. But the law society, so this is kind of an interesting juxtaposition. At that point, the law society, this is before things have gotten woke. This is like, you know, still um, the 90s. And... Um, and the law society completely gets it. They say you're doing you're doing you know good yeoman's work of like you know fighting this kind of cult and tells the the cult to fuck off you know and leave me alone, and that was great. So I, I that's what I was, my life was like. I was like living here in Victoria, criminal lawyer, uh, different things, playing the band, stuff like that, but mainly fighting the cult, and being a criminal lawyer. Hmm. And then nine eleven happened. Okay, so nine eleven happened, and I immediately started. To realize that, first of all, this caused a big schism in our ex-cult group because there were those of us who were kind of supportive of George Bush and rallying around the flag and trying to kind of, you know, defend America and all of that. Even though I'm in yeah. Canada, that's it was a simple identification. Yeah. And um, those of us that were more already more ingrained with the left and weren't planning to kind of leave it anytime soon. Yeah. So. This caused a big problem. We're supposed to only be talking about Mirage, but all we're doing is talking about 9-11, right? Yeah. And, and I started to realize soon after that that's a bigger thing for me to kind of think about. And so the Mirage thing is like we've, we've done what we're going to do. He's already super-duper rich. You go to xpremi.org and you see his, his place in Malibu blowing your mind, but he's already got that money. Nothing ever is going to happen. We've kind of we've stemmed his progress to some extent. Um, but what about this thing? What the hell was that? I knew nothing about Islam. Nothing. But I started reading about it. And one of the things that I first noticed was that the media was very, um, very shy and sheepish about kind of covering this ideologically correctly. And I'm, all I'm thinking about is ideology. Like, what's driving these guys? What are they thinking? Who are they? And um, so I start finding the the fledgling sites now that are that arise in the wake of 9-11 that are kind of critical of the jihadi ideology that led to it islamic supremacism all of that islam islam uh you know i don't say islamism i've never understood that neologism Hmm. um 
I don't accept it, was Muhammad an Islamist? And give me a fucking break, right? He was a Muslim. Mm. Anyways, so within, it took a little while, I dropped out of like caring about Marashi and didn't really kind of communicate with those people anymore. Uh, no, that's not really quite accurate, but my, my interest really, really shifted and I became very, very, very interested in Islam. And Benjamin, if we'd been having this discussion uh, maybe three years ago, that's what all I would have to talk about, you know? What, what does Jim Heller have to say about anything? You know, well, talk about Islam, that's what I really care about. And, and Islam's kind of encroachment on Western values and, and mm. all of that. And here's the thing now. Now, I used to read Jihad Watch, Religion of Peace, all of these sites, Gates of, Vienna, uh, Gates of Vienna, Gatestone, all of that, all the time. And that was, I was very hot on that. And here's the thing. I don't feel that hasn't lapsed in the slightest, but wokeism has com- has completely come to the front burner. The rainbow guess, jihad. Yeah. Fuck. And it's, <laughs> it's crazy and it's so insidious and... Yeah. When did that first hit your radar? Right. Well, it was it's kind of like it was a slow parade. When did it when did it? When did it? It's a good question. Um I know that you went to Evergreen and I know that was a um a galvanizing moment for you. I guess watching what happened to Brett um or maybe your own experience there. Is that it? A little bit of both. I was I was there, so Brett right. was kind of the outsider's perspective, but I have the insider perspective. So right, right. Watching what so, happened to an institution of education turn right. into whatever, it, like some sort of training camp for very inept radicals. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you have friends still from there? Well, I mean. I'd have to have friends before I could specify that I have friends that went there. But, um, yeah, I I guess actually I have have a few. Do you have friends? I I have a couple (laughs) friends. (laughs) Uh, Virtual friends, many, but uh, in-life friends. Yeah, but, yeah, I have a a few people that um, I'm connected to that that went there. One that's even still going there, yeah. So, so that was like that was a real milestone moment, but but I think with that, that's the thing. You you caught me up there unintentionally because it was the idea. When did I identify as wokeism? I can't really say. I probably only heard the term maybe. When did it start becoming common parlance? You know, yeah, yeah. a year and a half ago, two years ago. Yeah. But um, but the phenomena, the phenomenon of of. The, the left completely having no interest in discussion about the thing that I thought was so important, which was Islam. And, and that started happening really early on. And that's what drove me to like these kind of um, jihad concerned sites. And then okay. it, the, the, that became very, I became very, very aware of that. So that's all part of the same, same thing. Okay. But yeah. were you, um, what is your... Generally speaking, what is uh, the value that the left would provide in you know perfectly balanced political system? Like, what, what is what is the purpose of the left? Um, how right. far would you identify with uh, certain of their? Yeah. Know, oh my god, man! Oh my god! It was a fucking putt. They were they were set up for like a two inch putt. It was so all they had to do was kind of follow the basic ACLU program, 
the thing that led the ACLU to supporting the Nazis marching in Skokie, Illinois, which was a bedroom community just totally filled with Holocaust survivors. And the ACLU said, no, you know what, the Constitution, freedom of speech, it's really important, marketplace of ideas. And that's all the left had to do. All they had to do was say, look, we, I think you're really wrong about Islam, but I support you know, the discussion. Let's do this kind of rationally. That's okay. all they had to do. Oh, wait, and so why did they ignore Islam? Or what did you see from your perspective about uh, the, uh, especially the right. more radical uh, currents and uh, activities of Islam? Why did the left drop that ball? Well, okay, so it's one thing to say that you support free speech and you're into kind of like a rational debate and all of that. But I think it's a it's a, another thing altogether to say when you see the writing on the wall and you realize that if I indulge like the other side and allow that argument to happen, I'm going to lose it. And I think that the left saw that the just the evidence was just so overwhelming. Anyone that really were to look closely is going to see we're going to lose this argument. There are, in fact, lots of things in the Koran that um, – are unjustifiable and totally incompatible with like a safe, free, fun-loving kind of um, open Western environment world. Okay. There just are. And I know that there's a world of um, Middle East studies, academia, that uh, tries to gloss over that, but they're full of shit. And they're playing this game. You know, a lot of these um, Middle East studies uh, departments are funded by Saudi Arabia, which is, by the way, in the United States, it's against the law, but that doesn't stop anybody. So, so anyways, I think that the left saw that. It just, they were so um, reviled by the fact that they would, if they were to really have this open discussion, they're going to have to make concessions that they're just not prepared to make. Steven Spielberg wouldn't make them. They're not going to make them either. What concessions? That there is something in okay. Here's what it is. There's something very inherently dangerous in in the Quran. There are lots of things. Okay. And and it doesn't. And oh my God, I've got Muslim friends. At least I did until now. Um, but that's another subject. You know how Muslim. I mean, look, you've got this religion that threatens, in fact, mandates the murder of anybody that leaves it. My cult wasn't that bad, right? I mean, our cult let people walk away, but Islam doesn't. If you're in a Muslim-majority society, you can't mock Muhammad. You know, forget about publishing cartoons. You can't even question Muhammad openly, publicly, and you certainly can't leave him. So what is that? Well, you know? but why, why would the left not touch this or cover this up? What, what is it about the left on a game theory level that, the, that they're not touching or tackling? Because there's, so many, because there's so many Muslims that are trapped. They're trapped either because they don't know enough about Islam, they don't want to know. I mean, we're talking about, or, or they, um, they have this struggle within themselves. They try to keep the, the worst mandates in the Quran at bay while they lead, try to lead exemplary lives and are wonderful people. Okay, Islam directs Muslims to not be friends with Christians and Jews. And that's in the Quran. That's simply, that's, that's what Allah said. Don't be friends with Christians and Jews. Maybe Muhammad said it. Maybe they both said it. So, you got any Muslim friends? They're, and they consider you a Christian or a Jew. I'm Jewish by birth. Um, they're transgressing like a direct... Um, uh, direction from from the Quran. So the left 
wasn't willing to look carefully enough and parse out these issues. So, so Robert Spencer, who I just want to give a shout out to because he's one of the greatest guys in the world. He's the, um, he's the uh, creator and the main guy behind Jihad Watch. Robert Spencer is one of the most principled people I know. And yet you get um, uh, the uh, um, SPLC and all these other kind of leftist organizations that are denigrating him as some sort of like a, a violent extremist, terrorist, that kind of thing. All of that. And this is a common leftist thing because they refuse to actually have the discussion. They've dummied down on Islam and they've dummied down on the constitutional um, beauty of being able to discuss it. And that's a, it's an issue that can't be discussed. That's it. Islam was the first issue where I saw the left was walking away from the table, right? They, you know that you've seen that meme, that joke about having a, a discussion with a leftist, but maybe someone will say anybody else that they think is like their enemy is like having a chess game with a um, pigeon and the pigeon just knocks over all the pieces instead of mm. playing, playing the game. So, so that's where I saw that first happening uh, with that was the that was wokeism. That was like this Marxist kind of drive. They didn't, nobody knew it that way, but it's that's what it was. It was like it was like sailing with this wind. Nobody knew where it came from, but it's this Marxist wind that was driving their boat away from rational discourse and away from respecting others' rights to that. Okay, so there's this clip of uh, Ben Affleck and Sam yeah. Harris on Bill Maher's uh, show, Politically Incorrect, if it was called that back then. Right. But ben Affleck loses his crap on Sam Harris. Sam Harris is arguing against Islam, uh, taking a very uh, strong stance against Islam. And then Ben calls him maybe a racist or xenophobe. It starts like hurling all these he, insults. He questions, are you, are you, who are you? Are you some sort of religious authority to be able to even opine on this? Ben, uh, Sam Harris had a great line. He called Islam the, the mothership of bad ideas, of dangerous okay. ideas. And that's what Affleck reacted to. Okay. So yes. the, in that instant was exemplifying a Hacked of destroying discussion or yes. evading discussion or imploding discussion in order not to talk about this one sensitive issue, this one politically correct issue, which is really nuanced. Uh, you know, you have you have yeah. the religion, you have the principles, and then you have billions of people. Uh, yeah. But under that umbrella, how do you 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 know? start to talk about that and the problems within that but we're just going to shove that off and anybody who crosses this line is a bigot yep basically so that yep. that was, is exemplifying a tactic that you saw the left adopted but my question is why would the left go there what was yep. the benefit of the left shutting down discussion on that particular issue well so i've already kind of offered one speculation as to why that might be, which is that they kind of saw the writing on the wall and they saw that if they got into or countenance that discussion, they wouldn't be able to win it. And what they don't want to ever concede is that some religion or some ideology that they're not really kind of, um, uh, they're not um, deeply committed to, but nonetheless, it's out there that some ideology, especially when associated with people that are not white European um, descended um, Americans, uh, 
some ideology might not might be inferior to another one. Some religion might be inferior to another one. They didn't want to do that. That's like a very non-liberal, uh, superficial liberal kind of position. So hmm. The liberal position is that it's a it's a big big you know happy world and everything's the same. All cultures, all ideologies are the same. So if they didn't want to go there and they didn't want to concede that there's something very dangerous in Islam that is not dangerous in the same way in modern Buddhism or really I'd say modern Christianity to any religion. They didn't want to do that. Another speculation might be this. They're already, they've already got this kind of thing happening where they're, they know that they're going to be driving for more power. They know that it's just a matter of time before um, the U.S. Constitution is going to have to be seriously challenged and undermined. Why not now? This is as good an issue as any to try to shut down free speech on. But that's a real speculation on my part. Okay. And I don't know that anybody actually thought that. Okay. But you saw that the treatment of what we're calling the left of your particular issue was wanting in the very least. Yes. Where, in, in a world where wokeness didn't happen, where would you be on the political spectrum? Right. That's a great question. Um, I'd still be... A liberal, I mean, Canada, you know, legalized yeah. smoking dope. So that kind of, you know, but still, that's because the liberals did it. I'd be a liberal. That's, I mean, why okay. not be a liberal? liberal so kind of libertarian, uh, yeah. kind of do what thou wilt, uh, yeah. as long as you're not impeding upon other people. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Easy. And then any, uh, any issue that affects the body politics should be submitted to rigorous debate. Yes. Okay. All right. And then, but then woke did happen. So where has that sent you? Because you said over the last three years, something happened in the last three years that yeah. caused you to no longer be uh, plugged into Islam uh, or jihad. And now you are looking into this thing that we've called woke. Why? Yeah, that's right. How did that metastasize then well, in your imagination? I mean, sure. So... Um, okay, so let's see what happens. I was really interested in the Hillary Clinton email thing, and I was following it very closely, and I'm following kind of the conservative websites are very anti-Clinton, and I'm looking for the rule of law to kind of make its mark. And I, and I just think this is so inevitable because the evidence is there. This is back five years ago when I'm naive enough on today's standards, but at that point it was like the only reasoned kind of um, expectation, I think, to think that the evidence is going to make a real difference here and the FBI and all these guys, they're going to, they're going to have to kind of um, cause balls and strikes, you know, somewhat kind of um, reasonably. So I'm really, really, really into that. And then that therefore made me very anti-Clinton. I should say, like, I, I cried when Obama was was elected. I didn't I didn't want him to be from elected. From despair or, or joy? No, for joy. From joy. Okay. God, man, that's a horrible thing to say. Well, I'm just, I just <laughs> want to clarify for the camera. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I shared the moment. This is so far out. You know, yeah. black president, wow. Put that issue to rest, finally. Hmm. No more race issues. Everything's great, you know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that said, with a wink and a nod for anybody who's just listening. Right. <laughs> but, then, but then, you know, I discovered, like, different things. I read Jack Cashel. He's uh, there's another shout-out. Great writer. Oh, my God. He wrote um, uh, the book that exposed Obama's dreams for my father is really being ghostwritten by Bill Ayers. 
you know, the weather, the guy, the weather underground guy, the sky on of the head, the CEO of um, of uh, some big oil company. It's always that way. Really rich kid. Bill Ayers heads up the, the weatherman's underground for years, um, comes out. He's Obama's friend. He ghostwrites dreams from my father. Hmm. Bill Ayers is the guy that had his own autobiography about being on the lam and being in the weather underground and blowing up the Pentagon. You know, Maybe you know this little tidbit. His autobiography came out on September 11th, 2001. So... Hmm. Or it's being reviewed in the New York Times on that day. So if you got the New York Times from that day, you'll see his autobiography where he's talking about blowing up the Pentagon but not doing enough damage or like exploding a bomb at the Pentagon. He ghostwrites dreams from my father. I totally get into it, totally get into like I'm becoming more and more kind of skeptical about the media. The media's not doing this. Only the conservative guys are. Jack Cashel, you'll love him. Um, so anyways, time goes by, I'm getting further and further, and then the Clinton thing comes up, and I'm expecting big things to happen, and nothing does. I've, I've become a Trump supporter. I've never seen The Apprentice a day in my life. Uh, Trump was nothing to me. I knew nothing about him. I really winced at some of the kind of unfair things that he said during that first campaign. I, you know, I don't support, you know, being like that at all to, like, you know, cruise about his father and all that. But so what? Nobody's perfect in this game. I became a Trump supporter. Then what happens is I see how the left tried to frame him with stealing the election with with Russia, which is total bullshit. Okay, so uh, let me kind of collapse things and bring you somewhere kind of interesting. I don't know if you know of this book called The Cult of Trump. There was a book that came out, and it was a big bestseller. Sounds like eighty percent of the op-eds that were written in the last four yes. years. <laughs> but it was written by an authority. It was written by a guy that we used to praise when I was in my ex-cult phase. This is a guy named Steve Hassan, who we—he's okay. like a big ex-cult guy. He's like a cult expert, and now suddenly he's turned his sights on me, right? Well, you? But, yes, because I'm a specifically. Cult because I'm a okay. cult, so I'm in, a, I'm in a cult again. Okay. But does he call you out by name or just... Uh... He doesn't know who I am. Okay, okay. Well, I track him down. And we have a debate, and it's on, it's on YouTube, and I'll, I'll send you the link. Or put it in our comment section or something. So he writes his book, The Cult of Trump, and um, it completely buys into all of the bullshit about how, you know, Trump colluded with Russia and, and all of this stuff. And I'm, I'm just appalled. So I'm just another conservative guy now at this point that wants the institutions to be something um, of what they were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I want, the, I want the courts to be kind of what they were instead of being overwhelmed by wokeism. I've got to tell you what's happening here in British Columbia in a moment about that. It's, it's really startling. And that's, in fact, how I ended up kind of coming to, to make contact with you. So anyways, um, Hassan writes this book. It's all bullshit. We have a debate. Uh, you can see for yourself if you ever watch it, kind of um, how he just, he's just a sucker. Suddenly, like, this guy that I thought was so smart um, is just not, he's not receptive to the evidence, doesn't want to have, and he's blaming us for being cult members. You know, to me, the, the, um, the criteria is really simple. If you're not open to, to rational discussion, you've got to start you know, watching to see whether or not are you infected? Are you infected with some sort of closed-minded kind of cultish thinking? That's all that it is. It doesn't matter what the ideology is. It doesn't matter how many people subscribe to it. It's just whether or not how much it it um, 
cleaves you away from rationality. That's to me, that's the whole. Well, thing. there's plenty of rationalization. That's where it gets so sticky. So it feels yes. like rationality. Yes. Huh? Tricky, tricky life. But yeah. it, people have we better smarts. We can kind of, you know, wade through these things. And, and but it but it takes a certain openness to disagreement or a certain openness to the I guess disagreement or, or tension and right. exploring the tensions in gaps of understanding. Uh, and when somebody uh, is presented with a gap in their understanding, the way that they behave in that moment kind of will show you if they get really defensive, get really angry, or try to avoid it. Uh, that might mean that they have this uh, rationalization that they're trying to protect, which is kind of similar to a cult, which is a, a group of people having a rationalization that they protect from. Any and don't we of... all have that? We, well, yeah. we all have that. But but what, the, what make, marks the left and the woke so much is that most of us still have like at least a nominal um, but sincere um, kind of support and loyalty to the deeper fundamental values of like um, uh, free expression and rationality and all that. So if I think that you're stuck, we're having an argument about something, and I think that you're stuck on something, I can appeal to that. I can, I can call that one. I say, hold on. You know, you are committed to like, first of all, keeping at staying at the table. And you're also committed to like, we've got to explore the facts here. We just have to. Right. And that's used to be something that everybody could depend on. You could expect that that. So here. OK, so the left was routed on the whole Hillary Clinton on the whole um, uh, Russian email. Gate. No, 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 no. Right. No, no. I'm, I'm losing myself here. The, the left was routed on the Russian gate. Yeah, Russia gate. Totally. Okay. Yeah. And I expected I'm so naive. I'm always behind the curve. I expected some sort of um, uh, um, apology on the yeah, part retraction. of major media. Right. Yeah. I, I expected it. I actually did. Instead, we have Matt Taibbi. We've got Glenn Greenwald, maybe Andrew Sullivan to some uh, lesser extent. There just few, few people in the media that said, wait a sec, that should have happened. Instead, what happens, the New York Times, you know what they did? They had their big staff session and they said, look, we, uh, Russiagate has petered out. We can't go any further. Mueller was a terrible witness. That's the end of that. So instead of we're not going to admit anything, we're certainly not going to apologize to Trump. We'll pivot to race. And that was the, um, the, the birth of the 1619 Project. Oh, um, it, hmm. No, yeah. yeah, I was I was thinking about um, they them having a policy of no rear view mirror for themselves, but a rear view mirror for everybody else. Yeah. So they'll they'll not look back on themselves. They'll deflect and and show everybody else their rear view mirror. So yeah, that's an interesting totally. tactic that they took. They actually said that though. They actually had a meeting where the head of their editorial department or, or whoever, maybe head of the paper, said, "We are going to pivot to race. We need a new uh, kind of gambit." a new strategy to go after Trump, and we're going to use race now. And that was really how they started the 1619 okay. Project. Yeah. Let me tell you what's happening in our Which they awarded a Pulitzer Prize to, um, because they believe yeah. in so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. is crazy. Like Steve Fasan, the cult expert, becoming so silly. So, yeah, so yeah. Well, just one moment about the Hassan or Hassan um, discussion. Did you yeah. present him with, uh, did you call him out on, on evidence? And yes. how did that operate? How did he... Um, confront your confrontation about a gap in his understanding non-responsively totally okay. non-responsively you can see the debate 
He wanted to have a mediator. He was scared to talk with me without one. So he found one of a you know very kind of lefty guy, very nice guy. And he mediated us. And as soon as, as, soon as Steve was on the ropes a little bit, um, the mediator came in and protected him and changed the subject a little bit. Okay. All right. Okay. Sorry to let me tell you what's, I just wanted to no, no. put a note on that. Let, let me tell you what's happening in our courts here in BC. So I'm saying all these institutions that they're eroding the left is just it's a it's a an avalanche, it's a it's a flood, floodwaters are rising, and they're just kind of threatening all of our institutions. The law is is the ultimate one. And the all the law is the place, right? This is where yeah. the shit really happens. Yeah. Let me tell you what's let me tell you what's happening in our courts here in BC. In mid December the uh, provincial court and then the next higher court we have the bc supreme court not to be confused with the canadian supreme court but we have the bc supreme court then we have the court of appeal so that's british columbia the three courts um well actually the the two lower courts and then the other one had another uh directive that's kind of complements it they came down with directives saying that whenever a lawyer introduces themselves in court now they have to give their gender pronouns okay so they and they actually explained it. They said that this is um, premised on the understanding that um, it's false. It's a false assumption to think that you can know how to address someone or know what they are or who they are based on simply their voice or their appearance or their name. A total ideological assumption that I do not share. And yet they're just suddenly now the courts are saying that we have to do this. We have to do this kabuki theater where we say. Uh, thank you, Your Honor, for the record. My name's Heller, initial J, and my pronouns are he and him. Yeah. So they're in. They're forcibly injecting doubt into a very basic uh, yes. human sense apparatus. Of yes. Sex. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Totally fucked up. I, I will never do it. If you, if you can wedge that, then you can. It. What what else could you do that to? I mean, if if we can't trust our eyes and our ears. Um, in in a court of law, when we're talking about the truth, then what do we trust? Uh, it, 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 just that little tiny thing can lead yes. in that direction. Absolutely. I imagine the next thing that's going to come down the pike is that they're going to be, you know, there's this big anti-settler, anti-Canadian thing, yeah. uh, and making us kind of doubt uh, the very justification for our being here, which goes to our property rights. Do I really own this house? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, all of that. And so now what you have lawyers doing all the time and the law society here in British Columbia, they're, they're constantly um, genuflecting um, and virtue signaling and saying, you know, kind of I'm writing my letter. But underneath that, I don't just have the admonition that if this wasn't if this didn't go to the intended recipient, destroy it immediately. Instead, now the email also says, I'm writing you on the unceded territory of whatever multiple bands, you know, kind of really properly own this property. So if they can destabilize property rights, who then does it all belong to? And can, I guess, are they just going to have an edict where everybody has to give the land to the surviving natives of the land? And how are they supposed to be able to control all this land and all the people that they're suddenly in charge of and that yeah. they own now because they own the property that the people are on and people need property to be a person. So I just don't know where, where the end game is of that. No one does. No one does. You know, and as James Lindsay so artfully explains again and again, 
um, they don't know either. They don't have that end game. They're just pushing. You know, they're in a system, in a structure that they're just breaking at. You know, they're just punching at. They don't need to care about is the ceiling going to fall on them because they'll get out of the way. And they don't need to care about what's going to be built in its place. So those are great questions. Hmm. But I, who knows? So gender and property rights uh, within British law, um, but is there a way for the law to, I, I want to say abdicate, but I don't think that's the correct uh, word, to slow down or to reverse the culture that is being uh, forced upon Canada by its elites? Can the yeah. laws forestall yeah. this? Yeah. So we would expect the ju- that's what the judges are all about and all the way up to the Supreme Court. And this is really, this is another thing that I think that, that actually Lindsay was the first one that observed this. And uh, um, uh, yeah, he, he deserves credit for this. He says they might not even change the words because that's too big a deal to do. So you've got the constitutional protections in the states. We have a we have a softer constitution here in Canada with a big fat exception charter. in it, you know that it's a charter, but if there's anything an exception that has to be implemented by the government and it's in the interests of of society, go for it. So that's kind of not much of a charter protection. It's not okay. as absolute as the American one. But in any event, they don't have to change anything. They just have to change how words are interpreted. And they can open up the the door to all of that. So to answer your question, yeah, there is protection. The courts could protect us from that, but that's only as good as the, as the courts. And it's only and we're we're getting so much woke justice here. And I have to say that the Canadian Supreme Court is pretty damn woke. And you know they're they're great esteemed, totally respected legal scholars, and they're much smarter people than me. Uh, you know, I'll grant them all that, but I can see woke. You know, I can see when they they come up with these um, these myths that they now establish as like just myths in the, the realm of sexual assault. OK, so on sex assault cases, it's now a myth that no one can you can't quibble with any longer. It's been accepted. It's like dogma doctrine that can't be looked behind that that if a woman consented to sex 500 days in a row on the 501st day with the same person. It's totally irrelevant. You cannot bring in evidence of that prior consent because people have um, exploited it unfairly. Courts have jumped to the to the conclusion that she might have consented on that on the day in question. So we're mm-hmm. going to just say kind of categorically that none of that prior consent matters at all, right? And so that 501st non-consensual interaction is by definition rape. Yeah. And then carries all the legal ramifications of that. Right, right. And that's right. And there are other things in the world of sex assault, as you can imagine, because of like um, how strong wokeism has kind of turned its lights to that part of the law. But it's kind of wherever it will go. So I've been part of, of like this group of people who've been very concerned about these um, gender directives, not just in their own right, as bad as they are, because they are terrible and I'll never do it. I will never comply with that. Never. I don't know what will happen, but I just won't do it. But um, but it's like that's just the first step. Like the people that got the ear of the courts and got this undue influence, this kind of gender rights lobbyists within the Canadian Bar Association, they've 
they've openly, um, they've flouted their power, no, flaunted their power, and they've openly said that they've got, this is the beginning of their agenda. You know, they want to get rid of, for example, in British Columbia, we call our Supreme Court judges, um, uh, Milord and Milady. And just to be clear, Milord is for men and Milady is for women. Okay, just so we're clear about that. Okay. Yeah, I'm taking notes right now. <laughs> so they so they want that's the next thing. They want to go after that, right? What what would they say? Um just uh, my majesty my, my ex. Yeah, something my kind eminence of gender neutral. Like yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Get rid of sir, get rid of madam. Yeah. And there's you can make little kind of arguments. There's like an argument for for all of that. But it's not enough of an argument to kind of counter the, the value of tradition, the value of convention, the value of kind of maintaining something that we've had for a while. What is that, the value of that? It's just that. Why, is, why use a teletext machine when you have an iPhone? Right? Why keep tele- the teletext? Telefax? Tele- or? Telex. Telex. Yeah. Well, I, just for an example, <laughs> you're a lawyer, you can argue your Because the technology improved, and why would you want the shittier technology? What's better than saying, my lord and my lady? It's got like, a, there's a certain kind of, it's, it's warm. It's like, it's got like a, what's the value of an antique? It's like something we're settled in with. It's, that's a value in itself. And if I, you have to go to Jordan Peterson to explain that. I don't know. But like, there's okay. got to be deep, inherent, mythical, related values to the world we have around us. It's, it's. I think so. I'm just saying that. Sua sponte. I don't have any particular. Sua um, sponte. Kind of, yeah. Okay. I well, I mean, I, and yeah. and I, I don't mean to pick on you. I don't like picking on my guests. But you said that the uh, the magistrates up in their lofty tower are yeah. putting pu- putting forth this gender myth. Yes. But you're appealing to a, another myth yourself. You're appealing to this mythical yes. state in, in your own let's words. So, th- so there's it. competing myths, and how do yes. we reason our way through competing myths? Great question, okay? So when the judiciary came down with this directive, without any consultation with the bench, I wrote them a letter, and I said, hey, you know, that's a very kind of ideologically fueled directive you've come down with, and a lot of us disagree with it. Can we have the discussion that we were never you know, granted in the first place. Because I don't, that's a great question, Benjamin. That's a great question. I don't know. Maybe someone could persuade me, you know, to kind of at least shift my opinion a little bit. But they don't want to have the discussion. Okay. That's the All thing. Right. Okay. Okay. So I think my lord and my lady are, are, are um, justifiable. I'm not ready to throw them out yet. You know, you, you're having a garage sale and you go through the house with your wife and she says, just kind of uh, tyrannically, categorically, this is out and this is out. Wait a sec, can we talk about that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you just want consent of the governed in, yes. in whatever myth- mythology uh, is yeah. being put. And yeah. it is very suspicious when... See, this is the problem. I, I do not want to get into the COVID thing, but... It is precedent, and I'm not going to come down one way or the other, but the problem is that with the discourse of being able to even speak about it is such, is such a fraught thing that the people who are trying to shove down all these non-discussing or non-discussed mandates on reinventing our culture and on mandating a lot of authoritarian things are somehow allied with this 
It's unfortunate that they're allied or they've uh, maligned the COVID issue with a lot of people who are wary of uh, the wokists are now becoming wary of the vaccine when they might not need to. But the fact that they can't even discuss it is yeah. a whole pattern of behavior that totally. destabilizes the entire uh, the entire playing field. And especially in a time of crisis, it, it heightens things and it makes things even more chaotic. Absolutely. So much so. So much so. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's completely true. And we've seen so much of the of the evidence has um, uh, has shifted and and kind of the best thinking on COVID has changed over time. Like we're you know, I, I'm pretty persuaded at this point, not being a scientist or anything, but I'm pretty persuaded that, that it's a lab. It was a lab leak. You know, this is just on COVID. I guess say one thing did you probably did know, but this is like a big thing that a lot of people don't know. You know how the French collaborated with the Chinese to build the lab? Do you know about that? Hmm. Okay, so the lab was a um, a collaboration between the French and the Chinese, and the French brought the money and they brought the um, the know how to build the lab, and they brought a lot of the initial scientific training to get the guys up to speed. Right? Once they built it, the Chinese kicked them out. They kicked in 2015. The, I mean, the French are all over this. Where? Why isn't the media? The, the lab went rogue in 2015. Now, why would they want to do that? Why would um, a, a Maoist totalitarian state have any interest in this a, a biological <laughs> lab, have any interest in kicking a Western power out? Of, and yeah. seeing what they're doing. Anyways, yeah. that's yeah. that's quite crazy. So things have changed a lot over COVID. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it really is too bad. And it's it's such bullshit to say that um, that we we had a safeguard against these dangerous um, dangerous kind of ideas that make people more skeptical. We should all be skeptical, but making the hard calls. Like I'm, I chose to get back very late in the game because I want to be able to travel. I'm kind of buckling under the pressure, the kind of social pressure, I, I admit that. But I still to this day think that um, I don't really know. Look, in two years' time, maybe sooner, but definitely within two years' time, there's going to be a big group of people saying to another big group of people, I told you so. But I don't know which who's yeah, going yeah, to yeah, be yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, okay, so, I mean, again, that, that's a hard thing, and especially with the way that the algorithm's watching everything to get too far into that particular, oh, that particular topic. But, yeah, please forgive Sorry. me. Um, <laughs> almighty algorithm, uh, hallowed be thy code. Uh, so I, just to kind of pivot into hope, optimism, what, uh, and if not hope, if not optimism, what can people do? What is your? What are you doing about uh, the trouble that you see? I'm trying to find a renewed interest and faith in reincarnation. So no. you, you want to be reborn <laughs> as a, a higher order being or lower Another, order being? <laughs> some Star Trek alternative kind of planet or something. Okay. I, Benjamin, I. I, I don't know, man. I don't know. Things don't don't bode well. All of our institutions are falling. The umpires are getting drunk. You know, the, um, hmm. there's. I, I don't. I don't know. I'm really into some of the the just great opinion leaders in, in this realm. I've already mentioned Lindsay. You know, I mean, those guys are just brilliant. Um, but there are others. Hey, can I just say how great I think what you're doing is? 
do you mind? I don't mean to embarrass you, but you know, I just kind of found you somehow. I think it was because you were interviewing someone that I, I cared about, and um, and you're just really good, man. You're a good. You're a good listener, good talker. I, I think I've talked a lot in this discussion, but you've got good questions. You're a smart guy. It's good. Well, thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, uh, we, we're paddling done, down the river. You've done great stuff on on transgender stuff. You know, just really, really good. Yeah, it's a big topic. Yeah, I mean, my my whole tactic is uh, yeah, we'll talk about it because what happened yeah. at Evergreen was that you weren't allowed to. So the only way to defeat it is the first step is to talk to people who want to talk. I can't. This is where my imagination fails. I can't get into. I can't really imagine the mindset of the president at Evergreen. <laughs> Just like I can't imagine the mindset of the cops that go to someone's house that are able to kind of, I know they want to keep their jobs, but that they go to someone's house to kind of like um, in England, where they're like so hardcore. In Australia now, over COVID, in England, okay. it's over kind of hate. In Australia, okay, England but and hate speech. Where and... the cops will go to someone's house and they'll, they'll act like, I would never imagine that a, that a principled cop that was kind of raised in our Western society could could stoop so low. And I couldn't imagine how the president Evergreen, I mean, where are his, it's not just his courage. It's like, how does he look in the mirror when he couldn't stand up for Weinstein? You know, I, I, and that's where my imagination fails. And that's where my, you're asking me for what I think optimistically, I don't know. I've given up on thinking that the media is going to have any kind of moment of, um, hmm. of accountability. Nothing will do it. I believe that, I believe, oh man, I can't say this either because th this goes on YouTube. All right, I believe that something happened in 2020 bigger than a bread box that was fraudulent. <laughs> and I do believe that. And um, it, the, the media is everything. The media is our, our public mind and yeah. they'll never go there. And so, yeah. you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what do you do to... Um what do you do of interest when you're not thinking about the uh, decaying we jam, of... We jam on Saturday night. We used to have a band. Okay. Uh, we What's it called? Younger. We were called the X-Flies. Oh. And, and we just played around town and stuff. And so we've got like a really cool setup in the basement. So we play music. What, what's your instrument? Guitar. I'm saying. Okay. Biggest uh, influence on, on guitar? Well, so I grew up as a deadhead. Okay. Right. Uh, but then years to come, I was into like a lot of, you know, other. I was into industrial music for a while. Never really punk, um, but alt stuff, uh, p Pixies kind of stuff. People compared us back then to okay. Pixies a little bit. So, so very, kind of rather straightforward and hard. And No, soft too. Soft too. Soft oh. too. Um, so, you know, if things open up again, I'd like to be able to play somewhere. But the songs that I want to write, they're too ideological. Yeah. And, you know, I'd be getting the, the tomatoes that Rennie Davis got at Berkeley, you know. Um, but anyways, we play a little music. That's it. Hang out. We're, we're middle-aged, so we have e-bikes. Well, is that like a, that's a battery bike? Yeah. Battery bike? Okay. Yeah, you, so it's not like a, like a motorbike. No. Have you not, have uh, you tried one? They're so pretty. No. No, I, I have a, um, I'm, I'm kind of out young. in the woods. So, You're young. Yeah. Well, yeah. Bikes are great. They really are. Just try one. Everybody's getting them. Well, I have a I have a nice bike that I actually have to use more, but there's nowhere to go right now. Um, so, right. Uh, 
dreaming of a sports car for some reason. That's just in my head for some reason. Yeah, get a Tesla. I have no idea. I can't afford it. I'm a YouTuber, man. Okay, I, I don't know what that I'm means. a C-list YouTuber. <laughs> well, get and a, a YouTuber can't get any... Get a job. What? Get a job. <laughs> no one will hire you. You're, you're... Okay, boomer. <laughs> Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.